Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royful Brown, who is at 38 degrees and six point something for another minutes north, and 122 degrees and 14.9 something another degrees west, which puts me in northern, the best bit of California. And with me is Claire Asprey. Claire Asprey, last time you weren't in your normal abode. Are you back home? No. I am back in my usual haunt, 52.6 degrees north and 0.5 degrees west in Bedfordshire, UK. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peters is your projection, you're in the right place, folks. And in this episode, we speak to the man who literally wrote the book on cartography, author of the book Cartography, and a hot off the press new book, Thematic Mapping, 101 Inspiring Ways to Visualise Empirical Data. Kenneth Field. Hello, everybody. Thank, thanks very much for inviting me on. If, if I'd have known we were doing coordinates, I'd have looked them up, but I'm in, I'm in Redlands, California. So let's just go with a description of a place rather than numbers. Fair enough. Today we have an audio postcard from R. Sarah Spilsbury, who's in my favourite bit of Birmingham, the Jewelry Quarter. Now, good people, wrap over the knuckles. If you haven't reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, please do because what it means is that more people have the chance to be exposed to the wonderful goodness that is map corner so if you haven't done so already stop what you're doing right now and go to apple Podcasts, write us a tip top five star review or you can do that on another podcast platform and we're recording them with live on a zoom with some of our map corner listeners and if you want to join in the next broadcast then you just join our Facebook group, you'll get an invitation. And if you're not on Facebook, then just drop us a message on Twitter, 
to ask for a link. We usually record on the first Saturday of the month at eight. Sorry, we usually record at the first Saturday of the month at six p.m. UK time, which is one p.m. Eastern and ten a.m. Pacific. And that's where you'll find Ken Field, who is our guest this week, this month even. So Ken is a real map maker, which is very exciting because we haven't had one of those for a little while in Map Corner. So welcome to the show, Ken. And you want to tell us how you got into maps to start off with. Oh, how long's the podcast? That's, um, <laughs> the short history is, let me begin by saying I've never been called a cartographer. I've never had a job with the title cartographer, which is kind of obscure and bizarre and all those other other things, but I, I fell into it almost by accident. Um, you know, most people would say I love maps and, you know, go go back to school. And I, I guess I did. I had a geologist for a father, so there were maps all over the house. I, I loved geography at school and I was looking for a, a degree that would allow me to put off getting a real job. And I found one at a place that was then called Oxford Polytechnic, now Oxford Brookes University. And it was called cartography, a, a degree in cartography and geography. Basically just, you know, spend your time at university learning how to make good maps and so that's what I did I fell into academia after that and spent 20 years in UK universities leading GIS degrees map design teaching cartography and in 2011 I I literally had an offer I couldn't refuse which was would you like to go and work in California so I jumped across the pond and took up a job with a company called Esri in Redlands, California. And my, my te- technically my job title is Senior Principal Software Product Engineer, which that is almost meaning- No, which is almost, almost meaningless. So I, I kind of just go by Carto nerd because although I've never been called a cartographer professionally, I, that's what I do. You know, I, I write about maps, I teach about maps, I make maps. I make maps to break software, to test it, to, you know, allow people to learn workflows and, and see how they can apply the same techniques in their own own work. So I I I do a I do a lot. My my daughter calls me a handyman when it comes to maps, which I, I think is probably about as close a description to what I actually do as, as I can get. Well, you are because I was watching today the YouTube video of your presentation about your physically made wood and screws map to show the outcome of the 2020 election in the US. And that's literally handyman work. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, I've always maintained that. I, th- I don't know what it is about people who are into maps, but they seem to, it seems to pervade their entire life. It's not just something that you do for a job nine till five. I, I think people tend to have a what I, what I refer to as a geo lifestyle. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've got maps around me in, in my home. And, you know, if I see a map on a, an object out shopping, I'll probably buy it, even though I don't need the object. And and so sometimes when I'm, I'm you know, in my spare time, I'm, I'm still looking at ways in which to, to work with something map related. So during COVID times with the lockdown, I wanted to just experiment. You know, I've got a whole different set of tools in the garage you know, circular saws and dremels and drills and all sorts of things. And I was trying to think of a way in which I could build a map out of those tools rather than, you know, a mouse and a computer. And I, my mind went back to a, a bas relief image of the founder of Tiffany's store in London. Sorry, not London, New York. And 
it's a bas relief of his feet on the wall made out of screws that were different depths in a piece of wood. And from a distance, it looked like this wonderful image. And when you get close, it was just all made of screws. And I thought, well, I, I can do that with a map. I can make a, a digital elevation model and turn that into a physical elevation model as screws of different heights. And I, I've seen this done before with you know real elevation data, but I wanted to do something different. So I I used the, the 2020 election results over here, the presidential election results, and made a statistical surface and then translated that into screws that I, I drilled into a, a piece of old kitchen countertop. After a kitchen renovation, I had a piece where we cut out for the cooker. I had that piece of wood, and I well, I'm going to make a map out of that, obviously. <laughs> so that's what I did. And it was just something to, you know, you move from your home office to a different room while we were all suffering. Ken, you know the lockdown Ken, and, and do to do have, something different and do you have friends some yes do you want me to call i can call 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 them up now if you want so we can have some proof i think it sounds brilliant <laughs> and i like the uh, idea I, of a geo lifestyle <laughs> i feel like you know that's that's an aspiration for me i'll be a geo lifestyle influencer or something and the fact that i've got random mappy stuff all over the place is an expression of my geo lifestyle it makes it easy for everybody else to buy presents, though, because, you know, if they see a tea towel with a map on it, that's what I'm going to get for Christmas. That's I got for Christmas. I got a map with a, a tea towel map. So, yeah. There you go. There you go. And a chopping and board with a map on it, yeah. So, I do have to say, though, a lot of my friends are also, you know, map people, not, not least because, you know, there's a lot of them in this particular town. But, yeah, my, my network of, of friends extends a little bit into, into the mappy world, yeah. So in your new book, you've shown really mainly kind of political um, information through lots of different ways on a map. So how do you decide? You know, is there a better way of doing it? What's What are the options and how does that work? So the whole idea about this book came about because when I moved to the States in 2011, I, you know, I, I like to try and understand a place where I'm going to live and work and, and what have you by looking at data and, you know, what's around me and the kind of place I was living in. And I have a natural interest in sort of the political scene. And I started collecting political data and making maps of, then it was the Obama-Romney 2012 election. And that soon became a collection of maps. And I started using those maps to teach workshops and to explore different ways of making thematic maps, because there is no single one best way to make a map of political data. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and so what you end up with is a whole rich tapestry of map types. And most people will default to very traditional maps, a choropleth map or a proportional symbol map, to show statistical data. And then the maps we're very familiar seeing in the media and, and so on. But, uh, you know, the maps don't stop there. And there's there's dozens and dozens, if not more, ways in which you can map statistical data. So that collection of maps grew. And then, obviously, in 2016, we have another presidential election. So I started making maps of the Trump-Clinton battle. And those maps became a collection of about 30 and in about 2018, when my first book was published, um, I had a visit from a friend who works at University of Miami, Alberto Cairo, who's the author of some fantastic books himself, and said, he said, what's going to be your second book? 
And I said, I, I haven't got a second book in mind. I, I've written everything I knew in the first one. And he sort of very slyly said, yeah, you will, you will. And I did. And before I even knew it, that's what this collection of political maps turned into. I, I didn't realise it at the time, but I had the basis of a book. And it's not a new idea, taking one data set and making multiple maps. There's been a couple of examples through history of others doing it. But I thought it was time to perhaps bring back that idea. So it's a book with around about 101 maps, and they're all of exactly the same data set, the 2016 presidential election data set. And the idea is to show people the breadth of possibilities and how the map mediates the message, depending on the way in which you design it, the choices you make in colour, symbology, what you leave on, what you leave off. And so in there are maps like the one we saw President Trump put on his wall in the White House, which, you know, he was accused of being disingenuous with the map because it was, you know, there was a lot of red on it. But the map wasn't wrong. It, it wasn't incorrect. It was just one way of viewing that data. And also in the book, you'll see maps that look extremely blue. And if Clinton had have won, that would be the map that she probably would have put on the wall in the White House and just using a different technique to speak to a particular audience. You know, if you just want to, won an election, you're going to say, you know, wasn't I the best? Wasn't I the greatest? I won. Look at look at the support I got. And the map tells that message. And nestled among those two extremes in the book are a whole series of other different map types, you know, some that we might think of as a little more objective, a little more bipartisan, perhaps a little more truthful, and Ken, everything else in between. Ken, do you think you could have done easily, have done 101 maps about the British election because one of the things that always fascinates me about the states and in, and in small parts one of the reasons why I'm actually here in California is the amount of political science over here the, the crunching of data that goes on here focus grouping the amount of polling that goes on that they just I don't think us Brits just go in for that amount of the stuff you know it, it politics in the UK is a little bit more like magic, whereas it, over here it's a complete and utter science. I think the big difference is the lead-in over here to an election is that it's around about 18 months to two years, whereas in Britain a, a government can call a snap election and you've got five weeks of, of it. So I, th I think that's the big difference. And if you've got two years or 18 months of space to fill in newspapers and on TV, you know, leading up to an election, which effectively comes down to a choice between two people. And it's not it's not like Britain where we might have, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine different candidates in a constituency, albeit that maybe two or, two or three are only ever going to really win. But it's not two party politics in the UK. So it's 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 basically two sides in the US. And that, that protracted. Yeah, make it, because there's only two options. It makes it easier to have those sorts of maps, I guess. Not necessarily, because, of course, you're, you're limited to there is only two things. I mean, I have made maps of the UK election and there are many, many more colours that you can put on the map for a start <laughs> because, you know, you have very great regional disparities. You have a lot of red and blue in, in England. You have a lot of yellow or Going back six or seven years, it was a lot of orange for the Lib Dems. And then you've got all of the different Northern Irish colours. So you can make a much more colourful map, but but really it's, it, you know, if you've only got two things you need to show, that's that's a challenge in itself sometimes. 
it's not necessarily true that limited data or more simplified data is easier to map. Give us an idea of one map from the 2012 election, which you think subverts people's thoughts about either America or, or that election. I, I mean, you know, if you take, I think the, the, the one to use is to go back to the one that President Trump put on his wall. And I would have put the same map on my wall if I'd won the election, but that's that's never going to happen for lots of reasons, not least I'm British. But it's it, it was a map that showed the percentage share of vote by county in the US. So 3,000 and I think 180 something counties. And <clears throat> what Trump won were a considerable number of counties with relatively small populations. And the number of counties he won compared to the Democrats, to Clinton, was phenomenally more. But of course, the, the, the results don't add up like that. They add up to a, a state level, and a state is just winner takes all. So it's the total number of votes in a state that then takes the electoral college votes that come with that state by and large. So if you're going to map percentage share of vote across counties, you're going to, even if there's, you know, I don't know, if there's five people in a county, and this is an extreme example, and four of them voted Republican, you've got, what's that, an 80% share of vote. And if you shade that as a very, very dark red to say more, which is what that means, you're going to fill the map with a lot of red and a lot of pretty dark red or bright red, as opposed to you know a light red, which would mean less. And what Clinton had, of course, was many of the larger cities with high populations. But you know, on a map of the states, they're they're much smaller. They're pinpricks of Democratic support. But of course, those numbers were in the millions in terms of certain counties on the west and the east coast, particularly. And and they they help her take California, you know, New York, and 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 many other of those kinds of states. So that that to me is. It, it's it's the map isn't incorrect, and that's the that's the point I try to make in the book. I'm at pains to make it's in terms of construction. It it does it's correct. It does the right job, but do we want to map geographical space as opposed to the spread of the population? Yeah. I mean, if if we're talking about yeah. politics, we're talking about people and where they live, and you know, Texas has got fifty plus something electoral college votes. Montana's got three, I think, even though Montana's an extremely large state. It just has a very sparse population. But on a map, it's a big area. So that big area shaded in a lot of red, just purely in perception, visual perception, someone looks at that and goes, blimey, there's a lot of supporters for the Republicans there. And there might be in terms of a share of the vote, but there's you know, probably not that many actual people you know, probably in the tens of thousands rather than the millions. And there are ways of playing with scale. And, and I know that there are some I've seen from the UK where they have almost like a hexagonal for like a, an equally sized hexagon for every constituency. Obviously, it's not the same as population, but that then helps to balance those geographical differences between the, you know, the geographical size of constituencies. If you assume all constituencies are broadly equal when it comes to places in the House of House of Commons. But yeah, it can be quite, I've seen some interesting kind of maps that sort of stretch bits of land and shrink bits of land to reflect the, the size of the population. And they're, 
they, they can be quite fun to look at actually because it kind of gives you a feel for the the population of places comparing one to another and, and what you're describing really are, are cartograms which are a, a diagrammatic form of, yeah. of maps so one of the the criticisms of that map I was just describing is, is that it maps areas as, as real entities, as real shapes, as real sizes, when the population is not homogenous across those areas. So the cartogram is one way you can deal with that. So you either warp geography and you perhaps equalize the shapes according to the underlying population, which would make a state like Montana, very small, and it would perhaps bloat the District of Columbia, which otherwise you can't really see on a map of the states because it's so re- it's so, so small in relative terms. Or you do some sort of more abstract work like using hexagons of equal size to represent a, a county or a constituency in the UK, or perhaps circles of different sizes, maybe something we call a Dorling cartogram, named after the British geographer Danny Dorling because he invented it. And they are ways of equalising visually the shapes. But is it a better way? I don't know. I mean, what it does do is it will equalise the amount of colour that is on the map, which visually gives a better balance. So the message that the brain gets when somebody reads it is is in balance to the actual results. You don't have to go through this process of trying to concern yourself about how the shape and the area of a real piece of geography is modifying that visual message that the brain has to unscramble. The only problem with the cartogram is sometimes they look so abstract that they become difficult to interpret you know, in, the, in, the, in that sense. So what you gain in some respects, you, you can also lose if you're not careful. And I, I've got a whole chapter on cartograms in, in the book. And, you know, some people's reaction when they turn the page onto one or two of those cartograms is pretty visceral. I, I happen to like them. I think it's a good technique to use. But some people just, they just don't like them. You know, it's one of those map types that some people find it particularly hard to unravel and to understand. And unless you're very familiar with the shape of what it is you're looking at in terms of the map itself, you can quite easily lose yourself and not really understand what it is you're you're looking at. I mean, on maps like that, something like the use of labels is very, very, very important because, you know, you give people a, a random cartogram sort of distorted map and unless they can figure out where they're looking at by labels it it can be very difficult you know what mr field i'm gonna have to pause you right i could listen to you talk about cartograms all day right however right i need to make sure that like pat hanavan is actually paying paying proper attention right because i think she was kind of knitting janet beck was definitely knitting though in the last minute yeah she's not there you go i know what you're doing right we, every now and then ken we just need to just give our viewers a little bit of a prod just to make sure that we have that undivided atten- attention and we do that by sometimes having an audio postcard but because we are on video of course it's a video postcard for those on zoom Last time I accepted your invite to show you round Smethwick. This time I take you to the dead centre of Hockley, Birmingham, the Jewellery Quarter and its two cemeteries. At the centre of Hockley lies the recently restored Chamberlain Clock, memorial to Joseph Chamberlain commemorating his tour of South Africa after the Second Boer War. 
Adjacent is Warstone Lane Cemetery, established in 1847, known as such due to the Hoar Stone, a boulder transported by glaciers in the Ice Age, and Hoar being an old English term meaning white or frosty. The stone also marked the boundary between the manors of Aston and Hansworth. Within the cemetery we have Harry Jem, founder of Lawn Tennis, Warraloo, an Aboriginal prince transported to the UK for a better life as a leather worker, town crier Jacob Wilson, for whom a local newspaper was later named, and Lily Evans. Not to be confused with Harry Potter's mum, she was a baby midget and shown on display in the city but sadly died due to convulsions, or was it down to Mother Emma's drunken ways? It's noted for its catacombs centre, although Key Hill Cemetery next door also has these, which were used as an air raid shelter during the Second World War. Established in 1836, Key Hill houses Alfred Bird, originator of Bird's Custard, journalist Harriet Martino, and Mary Shaw Rogers, listed as wife of the above, despite doing a lot of work in their own right, helping to rehabilitate prostitutes. Although these were often cherry picked as libel good news stories, those more entrenched within lifestyle would be overlooked so as not to skew the success stats. It's also the final home for the aforementioned Joseph Chamberlain in, considering his import to the city, a remarkably unnoticeable grave, along with both wives. Next we head to Fleet Street, not to be confused with the former base of London journalism from which it makes its name from. Many street names and districts in Birmingham borrowed from the capital. It runs adjacent to what was a very busy stretch of canal which even employed two lanes of waterway dual carriageway style to cope with the heavy traffic, which backed up thanks to a set of 13 locks. But whilst this stretch of canal with its various tunnels is atmospheric, that's not why I bring you here. I bring you here to my place of volunteering, Newman Brothers at the Coffin Works. The firm originally set up shop as makers of cabinets with fancy handles, but by the time they moved to Fleet Street to a custom-built factory built on a site previously cleared out slum housing, they decided to start making handles for the funeral industry. It's likely that they changed tack. The same production methods were used, but there was a higher demand for coffin furniture due to the Victorian fondness for elaborate and over-ornate funerals. Over time, they expanded from metal-based manufacturing and diversified into making all manner of coffin furniture. Anything that decorated the coffin, inside or out. Though despite the name, the only thing they didn't make was coffins. At this socio-industrial heritage site, you can still see working drop stamps and fly presses in action, often operated by me, and visit a 1960s time capsule factory as if sneaking in when the workers have gone out on a fire drill. We also boast the warehouse, which contains many items dispatched to customers, the shroud room, boasting a single unsold Aston Villa shroud, and the office, replete with 60s-style office equipment, such as and I must admit, I just adore the jewellery court. And I was just saying to Claire just before we started the show, next time she comes to Birmingham, I'm dragging her to the jewellery court. I know she's been there before, but it's just wonderful kind of industrial heritage of, of Birmingham. And it's just this tight grid of these like lovely places and whatever. And it's just full of, full of history. But you have to tell us a little bit more about it, exactly what you do at, at, at the cemetery. 
I'm a volunteer at the museum. So I either do tour guiding or I do room enabling in some of the rooms that I was talking about in the in the audio postcard. However, the reason why I know so much about all the different people that I was talking about in the cemetery was that last year, a group of us were involved in a project and it was kind of like a promenade to piece and people, the, the audience would be led round to the individual sites of where different people were buried and then the actors would either tell the story as that character or as another related character. So that's how I know about that. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know lots of information about dead people, basically. I didn't realise that there were no coffins at the coffin works, but that's because I missed out on my chance for Sarah to take me around a few weeks ago, and I'm looking forward to doing that at some point. You guys we do actually have a couple, because we kind of really reckon that if you come somewhere called the coffin works, you don't actually see any. You might feel a bit misled, <laughs> but they didn't actually make any, so they're just for display. Stunning, stunning. And and, and th- thank you for that. It was an utter joy put, putting that together. It's just one one of the bits of Birmingham which is totally unspoilt, which I wish I could say there were lots of my home, which was thus unspoilt. But oh gosh, no. Those planners in the 60s and the 70s got their hands on Birmingham and utterly wrecked it. Mr. Ken Field, here is that you get a second bite of the cherry, sir. Is it second bite of the cherry, second bite of the apple? Anyway, yeah, you have a second go, second dibs, right? Well, basically, we, we talk to you again, but this time with the added value extra of people in the audience that can actually fire questions at at you as well. I'm always kind of fascinated, I'll go first. I'm always kind of fascinated by how, you know, but by people's kind of journey, journey into maps. You know, for me, it was just staring at my old Auntie Jeannie's Metal Globe circa 1974. And I've just been, you know, into maps ever since. When were you first aware of this wonderful, peculiar, beautiful, graphical representation of the world? Well, I, I think, going back to something I, I said previously, I mean, my father was a, an academic geologist, University of Nottingham, which, by the way, the East Midlands, let me let me say something about the East Midlands, very nice place, Nottingham. You should perhaps yeah, hop right. over from Birmingham right. every now and again. Don't try and overset, it's just all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all right. Well, Nottingham that's my home. nice. That's okay. my home, so I'm going to stick up for it. And, you know, he was... I mean, I guess we're talking about the 1970s now when I'm growing up. And, you know, the house was full of hand-drawn geological maps. And, you know, they're, they're so geological maps are so wonderful because they're completely made up. That's what I found fascinating. You know, we, I, I, could, I could never really get my head around what, what my father did. He sort of would wander around. Actually, quite a lot of southern Norway was, was his research area, and we used to go to southern Norway every summer for several weeks, and it was just a fantastic way of growing up. But, you know, he'd go along a, a roadside and there'd be a fresh cutting, and he'd just take a hammer out and knock a little bit of rock. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, you'd find this fantastically coloured map of apparently what was happening underneath. And it's just made up, right? <laughs> it's just completely made up. It's it's basically well. This is this is what we see on the surface. So this is our best guess about what we think is going on beneath the surface. And that to me, I thought, well, that's great. What a great job. And you know, obviously, there's a lot way more the, to geology than just doing that. Obviously, and we we have a better idea about what is happening subsurface. But I, I think probably those early geological maps were something that, uh, you know, I, I probably didn't even realise at the time, but were having a profound effect on me as I was growing up. And I, I loved geography at at school. I, I loved art. So, you know, drawing maps, 
seemed, seemed obvious to me. But I didn't know you could do it as a job. And that, that, was, that was quite a discovery. So you must have come through that sort of work at a time when it went from being hand-drawn to being <laughs> computer-drawn. Yeah, my, my entry into this world was possibly at the worst point in time if you wanted to become a cartographer. So I graduated in 1991 and at just about the time when desktop publishing, you know, and illustration software and this new fangled thing called geographic information systems was coming along to kill traditional uh, cartography. Can I just quickly pause you? What did you just say? Geographical what? Systems? Geographical information systems. You might just remember that, good people, for the quiz later on. That's all I've got to say. So, <laughs> as you were, Mr. Field. Okay. So, yeah, so this thing, GIS. So, I did a lot of photomechanical stuff in my degree. You know, I did make maps using scribing tools, scribe coat, peel coat, darkroom technologies. And all of a sudden, and we, we, we actually started using Apple Macs very, very early max for doing a little bit of computer cartography. But I graduated at the point to which that was about to explode. And so I was basically de-skilled as soon as I graduated. And like I said, I fell into academia and went to what became University of Northampton and started teaching. I did a PhD in, in GIS and retooled in, in this thing called GIS, which then started to become used to, to create maps for national mapping agencies and so on and so forth. So that's one of the things that if you're going to get into mapping, you have to be aware of that every now and again, you're going to have to forget all of the skills you learnt and you're going to have to retool in order to make maps using whatever new technologies are now used to make maps. So that's what I've done throughout my career. But I do like to go back to the hand-drawn techniques every now and again and, you know, get the sketchbook out and just draw maps. And, and I think there's something very valuable about that as well because it means you spend time thinking about what it is you're committing to a piece of paper, whereas a lot of the times with the computer and a mouse, you know, we just go to the undo button if something doesn't work or we don't like it and there's no damage done. You know, if you're, if you're having to make a map on a piece of paper or using photomechanical techniques, there's a... A lot of jeopardy involved. If you don't get it right first time, you've spent a lot of wasted time because you're going to have to redo a lot of that work again. And, and that, I think, was a good training. So even though we, you know, we now use computers, it was a good training to develop that mindset of thinking before you do something, You know, thinking about symbology, colour, typography, all of the different components of a map. And, and I do see a lot of, a lot of that kind of skill and expertise in folks of kind of my generation who've gone through that similar training way back when in perhaps a way in which nowadays you can make a map in 10 minutes and if you're lucky it'll be pretty good if you're not lucky it might not be so good <laughs> this is not going to work for the podcast listeners but i would like mr bill to show us that thing which we just had on his camera because th th that that was that was pre pretty spectacular. I'm guessing, Bill, that what you have shown us is a geological map of Ireland. So describe, for the sake of the podcast listeners, exactly what you're showing us there. Right. Well, I, I first apologise to Ken for for doing this in the background while he was speaking about 
his inspiration. But when he mentioned these geological maps, I couldn't resist. This is a very early geological map. It's not the earliest. I think the earliest is said to be a map, a geological map of Britain. But this is a geological map of Ireland, which was included in a report of the Railway Commission orders of 1837. And it is actually engraved. The date of the engraving is said to be um, April 1838, even though the report was supposed to be filed in 1837. So, but here you have the thematic map. And of course, this would have been all hand colored. So someone with the watercolor brush that, thank you, thank you for that, Bill. Now, Ken, obviously this map is almost two hundred years old, you know, almost, right? What do you reckon to that color selection? I've got my own views there, right? But you are a professional cartographer. What do you reckon to that use of color to depict the different types of rocks in Ireland, circa? Well, I don't suppose they've changed since <laughs> eighteen thirty-eight. But what do you reckon? <laughs> what is it? What's your cartophilic professional opinion, sir? Looks all right to me. I mean, I mean, geology is a really difficult thing to do because, you know, you can have hundreds of different rock types and subtypes on a single map. And, you know, the, the, the point about that is usually it's a, a qualitative difference between the different rock types, which you would ordinarily use a different colour to show. And, you know, how many different colours can we see on a map? Not not that many, really. So I think anybody who tackles a geological map and tries to come up with a colour scheme that shows that difference is doing a pretty good job. It's a it's a beautiful map. Right. It's a beautiful map. And thank you for that, Bill. Nick Roworth, you got your hand up, sir. Ask your question. No, I was just gonna say that I used to have to draw maps by hand and you could the only way to fix them is you had to get a razor blade on the tracing paper and scrape it off and then re put another piece of tracing paper over and re get it so you could do it again but you can only do it once if more than that and it would go through the paper and you couldn't couldn't it was just like blurry all the time yeah and imagine a sort of a i think i was 19 when i went to university and you know you go into that first cartography lab and they say right here's your list of equipment that you've got to buy and the most important thing you've got to buy is a scalpel yeah. What? Sorry, I mean, just come to medical school. What is this? And, and becoming proficient with a scalpel was something I'd never envisaged if, if it was about making maps. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Scraping yeah. off mistakes. I used to have to use uh, the, 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 photo, the fo stereo photos. You look down and put a piece of paper over it so you could draw around what all the places were to make a map. That's the other thing I did. Yeah, yeah. From the ones, you know, yeah. plane going over and taking pictures. Yeah, me too. And the interesting thing is I did a work placement at the British Geological Survey during, I think, my second and third year for six weeks in their, their drafting office, making geological diagrams and contributing to the maps of BGS. And I hated it because <laughs> it was... It was tedious. It was like, you know, I go to work every day and I, I was given a task of drawing black lines of consistent width. And I thought, what the hell is this? What sort of job is this? I can't, you know, and, and down tools at 10.30 in the morning for a 20-minute coffee break and then pick them up again. And then you down tools for an hour. And then you go home and you think, what have I achieved today? And it's, 
that that manual process i couldn't have envisaged doing as a full-time job i i vowed then never to be a cartographer and technically i haven't been because i've never been <laughs> in a job called cartographer although clearly i am so yeah, I, I here on this kept my promise or not. under false pretenses then sir if you know <laughs> i think my entire Blair, career has been false, false pretenses <laughs> yeah no i'm <laughs> still stealing a living somewhere or other yeah. right what well, we have to do look, we've gone massively over time and that is completely utterly my fault for not having any kind of time discipline but we're going to go on to the quiz Right, because otherwise we're going to run out of run out of time to do anything today. Right, so the prize of winning this quiz is that you have the accolade, the honour of doing the audio postcard for the podcast or the video postcard if you're watching along on Zoom. And if you'd like to join us on Zoom, join our Facebook group by typing into Facebook Map Corner and join the group, and then you'll know when we actually are putting these things out. And you can join us and then you can join the quiz live. But if you're playing at home, get paper and pen to hand. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Question number one, cartography. What do the initials GPS stand for? Is it A, geographical positioning system, B, global positioning system, or C, geographical point system so what do the initials gps stand for is it a geographical positioning system is it b global positioning system or c geographical point system question number two cartography again what do the initials gis stand for so hopefully you're all paying attention when ken was uh, busy chatting earlier is it a geologic information system b geographic intelligence system or is it c geographic information system hmm were you paying attention earlier on question number three again we're in the world of cartography what is the origin of the word map is it a latin meaning napkin b indian meaning earth mother or c greek meaning sphere the origin of the word map does it come from latin and does it mean napkin? 
Is it B, a word from the Indian languages meaning Mother Earth? Or is it C, a Greek, Greek word meaning sphere? What important, what's important about the ninth, start again. What's important about the 1507 map produced by Martin Waldmuller? I think I know this one. B, the first use of the word Australia. Did I say B or, or did I say? You said B, try that one again. My, 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 my dyslexia is killing me today. A, the first use of the word Australia. B, first marking of the equator or C, first use of the word America. In 1507, there was a, a map produced by Martin Waldmuller, Waldsmuller, and what is it notable for? Is it A, the first use of the word Australia, B, the first marking of the equator, or C, the first use of the word America? Again, cartography. What did Mercator first publish his map with a Mercator projection? When, sorry. I'm dreadful today. I'm going to read this again. I'm going to make a killing for myself in terms of editing this. Right, I'll just start again from the top. Question number five. When did Mercator first publish his map with a Mercator projection? Was it A, 1569, B, 1669, or C, 1769? So Mercator, when did he do his first Mercator projection? Was it A, 1569, B, 1669, or C, 1769? The London Underground map is an example of what kind of cartography? A. Topographic. B. Topological. Or C. Topo... How am I pronouncing that, Claire? Topogesic. There you go, from Claire. So, the London Underground map. What type of cartography is it, other than just clever and pretty? A. Topographic. B. Topological. Or C, topogesic. Question number seven. What phrase or imagery was commonly used for unknown areas at the edge of older maps? <laughs> A, here be elephants. B, here be lions. C, here be dragons. What phrase or imagery was commonly used for unknown areas at the edge of older maps? A, here be elephants. B, here be lions. C, here be dragons. And our last question, GPS was opened up in 2000, but when did Google Maps launch? Was it A, 2003, B, 2005, or C, 2008? And thems is your questions, and we'll come back to them after we have some social media news from our Claire Asprey. Am I expecting good scores today? Because I think with our particular cohort of listeners, some of those aren't as fiendish as some of my normal quizzes. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> I've got my fingers crossed. So, yeah. So, we great for the social media roundup. A couple of things to pick out that's been on the hashtag map corner on Twitter. One was Magic at Mungo's sent us a map around the prevalence in the UK about who goes to work in a car. And I think this is to do with some of the sort of announcements around kind of investment in public transport and so on. And it's a it's a really hot issue. But actually, you know, the West Midlands, Royfield's Patch and Wales are the, the places where most people go to work by car, 80 percent. But it was sort of 70 to 80 percent everywhere except London, of course, which was 27 percent. So that just goes to show the difference between London and the rest of the country. 
And I have to tell you, since lockdown, and I don't have a season ticket anymore, I have to drive to work, really, because the train is ridiculously expensive one, at one-off level, and it's really annoying. So I'd much rather go by train, but it's like five times more expensive, and it's just ridiculous. Anyway, enough of my... And then another thing that I posted was that 100 years ago, there was legislation proposed in the US to classify lynching as a hate crime. And it's taken 100 years to actually be approved. And there was a really grim map, which which I tweeted out on the hashtag map corner, which was one of the maps that was done in 1922 to sort of emphasise the need for this and, 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 and map the scale, and not just the scale of lynchings, but also the sort of political position, state by state, of kind of different representatives. And yeah, that was pretty dismal, if I'm honest, but really important. It just goes to show how, you know, you need sometimes to present that information in a way that, well, in theory, would change opinion quicker than 100 years, but there you go. So then over on the Facebook group, which is growing all the time, we've had a fair amount of chat about the latest craze, which is our world all and our global. I'm sure that many of our listeners are hooked on those alongside other daily quiz games. I do a world all every day. Don't always do very well at it, if I'm honest. But uh, yeah, there's been quite a lot of chat around that. And I I'm, I suppose I should probably be grateful that people aren't daily posting all their world or scores into the map corner of Facebook group, although I suspect it's only a matter of time. Maybe we need a sort of special place for it across the listenership because it would be quite fun. But I do quite badly most of the time. So, uh, you know, I'd only want to share it when I did really well. Yeah. So when Morris Snell posted this really great map showing the most common surname across different countries in Europe, and it really showed the prevalence of Smiths and Millers, basically. It's all the kind of, you know, job-based surnames and how they are kind of like, you know, every, every I suppose, I think someone pointed out that it wasn't that there were lots of Smiths, but every individual place had one and so they were known as the smith rather than you know there were maybe lots of field laborers but only one smith so that it's one of those that actually stood the test of time because it was distinctive in each individual place and that's probably true for the millers as well to be fair so that was an interesting one stephen bowden posted one around the most common dream by country now that was kind of bizarre and it makes me wonder and Ken might have a view on this because sometimes I see these and I these are my favorite kind of maps is where you kind of are presenting some some random set of data by geography as a sort of infographic and and you know and I'm, I'm a sucker for those kind of maps but sometimes I look at them and I think where have they got that data from what's that data set that's absolutely mad people have just made that up surely and so yeah I think that that's one of those where you know, how how can you possibly have a, a, a decent data set of what have people dreamt about in different places? I don't I'm not aware that anyone's collating that. So that's one of those I think that's been made up by some company as a puff piece for a, a press release somewhere. But it, I do love them anyway. I'm still a sucker for those sort of maps. And then we talked about earlier and Ian Sidey shared a photo of this cartographic birthday present, which combines three sort of nerdy loves maps, history, trains. It was 200 years of the history of Scottish Railways, all in one book. So he's clearly a happy guy. And yeah, we all love a map present, don't we? So it's really nice when people share their map presents into the map corner Facebook group. And just a final one, I wanted to flag the, I think it was this week, Pauline Dawson posted. She had this beautiful kind of long, thin map of the Thames, which was kind of like walked you all along the length of the Thames and told you what you would see around it. And again, I think that's, 
those sort of things are great because it kind of takes one feature and focuses on that you know so it's not you know it's not geographically correct it takes the Thames all the way through in a big straight line but I think it would be a fantastic companion to pretend you're walking along the Thames or to take a longer walk on the Thames so you know that's that's a lovely stretch of stretch of river to walk along and a great map to have by your side you fold it over to the bit that you are on at the time so that was a that was a great picture so yeah that's some of the stuff that's been going on but you know join our Facebook group get involved post some of the maps that you like comment on the maps that everyone else is posting you know because some good debates this last month so it's all good fun over there Claire how long have we been doing this podcast <laughs> I don't know about three years or so right and after three years I can't remember what comes next what comes next Okay, well, I think we should probably do the answers to the quiz. All right, smashing. Let's do the answers to the quiz. So, before we uh, do the answers, right, yep. before, we, before we do the I can offer a bonus question. Oh, we've never had this before. There this you go. Well, well, just breaking convention. The, <laughs> just <laughs> the last question was what year did Google Maps launch, correct, if I remember? Yes. Yeah. And all right, well, if anybody can guess the actual date, as in the month and day. I'll be really impressed. There you go. Don't start Googling it now. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're watching the people on screen. Check they're not looking up. Must have been Mercator's birthday or something. Oh, well, maybe. Right. Okay. Right. We'll we'll, we'll start with the answers. All right. Let's start. Question number one was, what do the initials GPS stand for? And the answer, Mr. Field, is? Oh, I mean, you want me to do this? Global positioning system. Boom. Anybody who is not only listening to this podcast, but is on the Zoom, if you got that wrong, you need a slap across the chops. Come on now. Right. We're all mad. No, no. no. <laughs> Question. No violence. We don't need violence. It's all about well, maps. It was a metaphorical no. one. We're not. I don't oh, okay. know a Will Smith and Chris Rock type. No, song. that's that's what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're metaphorical like, one. Does not officially condone violence. I want to make that yes. very clear. Metaphorical <laughs> slab across the chops. Not, not an actual one. Right. Number two. What do the initials GIS stand for? And Mr. Field, the answer is Geographic Information Systems. As you said, as we were chatting earlier. All right. What is the origin of the word map? I've got a sneaky feeling, Claire. We've actually had this question before. We may have. It can look vaguely familiar when I was putting the quiz Mm -hmm. together. Well, I just showed if people would be listening. Yeah, well, well done. Mr. Field, do you know the origin of the word map? I thought it was B. So you're uh, saying it's an Indian word meaning earth well, mother. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's it's not sphere though, is it? It's not it's not a word about sphere. Anyway, I might be wrong. It is actually a Latin for nat- Is it really? Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. I've learned something. Mm-hmm. All right. Question number four. What was important about the 1507 map, which was produced by Martin Waldsey Muller. I said it correctly this time. It, I did uh, elongate it. I think I know the answer. Well, I do know the answer to this, and I think about it. But M- Mr. Field, you're you're a map person, and I believe you're you're kind of sat in a in a country which is in a continent which was only discovered some 15 <laughs> years previous. 
to to that. <laughs> so the answer is? Well, it's correct. I'm sat in a country and a continent. That's correct. Oh, really? It's the first use of the word America. Oh, That's right. well done. Well done, sir. Well done, sir. I think we may have had that one before, but at least it was definitely when we talked to the map men, they did a video that included that. So When did Mercator first publish his map with a Mercator projection? Hmm. I think I know this. Yes, I do know this. All right. So the just just for people who are listening in at home, the potential answers were 1569, 1669 or 1769. Mr. Field, with, with your cartological mapaholic knowledge, give us an answer. <laughs> oh, rubbish at history as well. I'm going to say 1569. Yeah. Um, well done, sir. Well done. London. The London Underground map is an example of what type of cartography, topographic, topological, or topogesic. And if you get this one wrong, Mr. Field, I will eject you from the Zoom. <laughs> well, I can't afford to get this wrong because my career will be over. I've even got it tattooed. That's <laughs> my favourite map, Vextube map. This is a topological map. Excellent. Also, can I just encourage anyone who's got a map tattoo? Share those into the social media because that's that's going to be interesting. Depending where you've got the tattoo, of course. I mean, yeah, be sensitive about that. <laughs> Maybe you can have scribbled on your body, there be dragons or something. You know but anyway, what phrase or imagery was commonly used for unknown areas at the edge of older maps? And the answer is Mr. Field. Here be dragons. Absolutely. No, actually, what? it's a bit of a myth. <gasps> so when I was researching the quiz, this is I contentious. Well, which said that actually it was far more common for people to say here be lions, and there's only like one or maybe two examples ever of it saying here be dragons, and yet that's the one that's become popularised. So it was kind of a trick question. Because we all think it's here be dragons, but actually there isn't a huge amount of evidence for that. And there's a lot more evidence for here be lions. All right. Did anybody... Well, that silenced everybody. It, it, well, <laughs> obviously, right? There's me about to just move on to the next question. Then, well, we've all got that one right. Did anybody get that right? Unmute yourself and go, booyaka, booyaka, I got that right. <laughs> That's fiendish, okay, Claire. So well, well it was done. less fiendish. Like, it wasn't well that done. Well done. Well done, Claire Asprey. And the last question, question number eight. GP. Oh, no, because we've got a supplemental. All right. So, Supplementary question. All right. Yeah. So GPS was opened up in 2000. It was President Clinton that said we're going to give this to the world, wasn't it? Yeah. But when did Google Maps launch? Was it A, 2003, B, 2005, C, 2008? Now, I was trying to work this one out. It's either 2003 or 2005, and I'm going to go for 2003. What are you going to go for, Mr. Field? I know you you, you know 2005. this. 2005. Oh, God damn it. Yeah, Mr. Field is correct. It's 2005. But All right. now, then... a supplementary question. <laughs> what supplement... day is 2005? Well, you've got 365 choices. So <laughs> there you go. Just remind us what the what the question was, though. Which you're asking. What exact day in 2005 did Google Maps launch? Why is the, why does the day have some significance? Or does the day have any significance? It has significance to me, yes. Oh, was but it your, your birthday or something? It, it was my birthday, yeah. Ah. That's the only oh, reason right. I... 
The only reason I remember it is they happened to do it on my birthday. That was kind of them to do that. For very birthday, kind, wasn't it? <laughs> was it? Wasn't it? Yeah. It's a great way of honouring your work, sir. Yeah. I, I doubt there was any consideration of that whatsoever. <laughs> totally random, but it, it means that I I can always remember the date. So, and... whereas if it was my mother's birthday, I'd always forget it. So it, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> <laughs> and what is what? What was the date that Google Maps launched? February the eighth. Right. Now, if anyone and didn't it, get it, that one, I think they can unmute and say Buyaka because that's very impressive. And it, if you remember, the map at that time that they launched was only North America and the UK, and everywhere else was ocean and sea. Ah, you yeah, can do do a little do a little Google search, even or, or whatever your favourite search engine is for the first Google map. It's actually quite fascinating. It's it's like one of those brilliant old historical maps from seafaring days when nobody knew where anything existed <laughs> and, and there we are in 2005 and dragons in though no it was just blue that was it it was just you know <laughs> did they just put here be no data that's probably, probably <laughs> yeah. the truth yeah that's the, um, that's the modern equivalent isn't it <laughs> i i tell you i don't remember google maps launching but i I remember the street map and map quest at the same time. But what I do remember, which utterly blew me away, was when Google Street View launched. I spent hours going, how is this being done? Janet Beck's going, yes, Rockfield, yeah. I was like, I had to ring people up. Have you seen this? How is this just like, couldn't get to sleep that night. I was just like going down streets, virtual streets. Oh my goodness! And Google Earth as well. Might blew my poor little dad's brain when Google Earth launched. He just kept on zooming in on his little village in Jamaica, you know. And he says, "I can see my school. I can." Oh, anyway, oh, mapping isn't it awesome? There you go. There are people uh, who use Street View to go and see old relatives who are no longer with us because they were captured five years ago or something, water in the garden or whatever, and they're still there. Oh. And it, it caught out one or two philandras as well, where cars were not supposed to be where, where they were. Yes, there's all those stories of Google Google Street View when it when it first launched. Right now, Claire, it's almost time for us to fold up our maps, isn't it? It is almost time. But first, I'm going to give you my map fact of the month. And I took this off Twitter, so anyone who saw see me tweet it earlier in the month will know what is coming. So you'll remember they found Shackleton's boat recently in the Antarctic. And there was a lot of discussion of the location of the boat. And there was this great thread, which I recommend to people, from at Pocate Maps, who is a map maker called Kate, who was talking about how... People were saying it was silly to talk about things being north of the Antarctic because everything's north of the Antarctic. But actually, geographers and scientists do have an agreed international standard for the Antarctic. So you can have what's north or south of the Antarctic, if you like, on, a, on, a, on an agreed approach. And they've since 1962, there's been officially adopted a West Antarctic and East Antarctic so even the Antarctic, where in theory everything is north of the central point, isn't all north because it is a, the convention to discuss different parts of the Antar of Antarctica as north, south, east, and west. 
and there was the reasons why. So I thought that was that was a bit of a again another bit of myth busting, but really helpful explanation. So if you uh, if you want to understand the the explanations for the Antarctic geography, then check out my Twitter feed at Claire Jasprey, and it will be on there. Claire, guess what we've we've forgotten to do. What have you forgotten to do? See who won the quiz. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you yeah. have. Yeah. All righty. So I'm going to go on to gallery view. So I've got all of your beautiful faces all lined up. Right. So I'm looking at Nick Roworth. He's looking pensive. Right. We, I'm expecting got... high scores today. Yeah. Well, I got I got seven and a half just by guessing them live. So half. I'm having a half for Herbie Dragons. Right. Wow. <laughs> wow. That, that's contentious. Ooh. Oh, was that eight and a half? No, I got eight and a half. Plus a, plus a bonus. Oh, yeah, but, but, but I don't think you can count the, the question you invented. Of course <laughs> I can. Of course <laughs> I can. I'm the guest this week. That's my prerogative. <laughs> right. Well, that's fine. Next, I, you know what? Let's, let's see how everyone did. You, you know what I like, right? Janet Beck, who's been knitting all the way through. Right, and then whenever I mention her, she, she 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 comes back alive. Right, I I think my money's on you today, Janet. Right, the, absolutely uh, not. No, no, I no. mean I no two. No. My money is on you. <laughs> I, I've lost my money, but my money is on you. <laughs> For failing. I mean, the only one I got right with a name like Beck, I would know the London, you know, Harry ah. Beck, no relation. But you know, are you are you a big fan of the band, Janet? there's a band called beck that's a no then okay no right well done all right all right so without any further ado who got all eight seven i did i got them all eight well well done counting counting the dragons but i knew the dragons was a myth so wait a minute there bill are you saying that you got the dragons one correct well, not that you knew it was a myth, but did you say here be dragons or did you say here be lions? I did indeed. I said here be dragons, but I knew it was. Uh, okay. But what he said so was he, he knew. What he said was he got it right once he knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I see. I think we need an adjudicator on that one now. No I agree. I agree. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, are you telling me, sir, that you got seven correct? I got seven correct, and I answered, I gave the conventional answer for number seven. Okay, well, we have a, we have a winner. Well done. You know, sure, virtual confetti has been thrown in your direction <laughs> right now, Mr. Bill. Do you know what this means? Other than the fact you get bragging rights and, and a hand clap from Sarah Spilsbury. It means... Beginner's luck. Well, it's not beginner's luck. You know, yeah. I, I'm, studied inquiry into the world of geography has got you to this point so we can win a quiz so well done but what it means is you need to submit an audio postcard in the next 30 days right it can be about anywhere in the world as long as you have some level of connection to it weave us a four minute story about it and record it on your phone and send me that audio link do you think you can do that bill sure smashing Thumbs up to you. Congratulations. You, you follow a great tradition of listeners and viewers of this podcast. Sarah Spilsbury's obviously done it. Ken has done numerous. Pat 
has done fantastic ones. Nick Roworth has had not one, not two, but three bites of the cherry, so to speak, doing this. So you 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 follow giants of this podcast, sir. Giants. We're looking forward to it. Send an email with your voice note to royfield at gmail.com. That'd be most awesome. And on that note, whew, I knew this was going to be a good one, our Claire. And Nick <laughs> and Ken Ken Field, he didn't let us down, did he? No, it's great. That's the first. <laughs> We're easy to please as a bunch, I'm telling you. Easy to please. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me on. It's been fun. No, it's, it's been great having you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a shame you support Nottingham Forest, but well, whatever. Oh, did we mention that? Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah today. Yes, yes, you had a lucky 2-0 victory against the mighty Birmingham. Lucky? Oh, very, I don't very know. lucky, very lucky. Claire, it's got to be time for us to fold up our maps now, hasn't it? Yeah, it's time for us to fold up our maps. And I haven't got anything booked in June, in May. So look out for that. We may or may not have a have a recording in May, but in June, really interested to hear from Adam Nathaniel Furman, who is a designer and an author of a book that's just coming out called Two Spaces, which is an atlas of LGBTQIA plus places around the world. So I'm looking forward to that. Claire, I've got a tiny little idea, which I'm just going to th- throw in. You know when we're not going to do an official podcast because I'm backed up all the ones which I still haven't edited right maybe Uh what we could do in lieu of that is to do a quiz a visual quiz on zoom because this whole you know wordle thing you know you know shapes of countries that's my schnizzle right I, I come on why don't we do that and we don't have to call it a podcast we just get together and we do a quiz and I can win (laughs) <laughs> do you know what that reminds me of my dad my dad used to have this phrase that says we keep playing until i'm winning i like your dad I, I i like that well why don't i just leave that thought with you and you can have a thing because you you is the boss and i'll just go along with whatever you say and on that note ken field awesome thank you for joining us on the show janet beck can you just show us what you've been knitting it there janet here we are. Oh, oh. so yeah, you can't see it against the screen, can you? It's a blanket for a premature baby. Oh. So I keep making them. So hasn't been born yet, but here we are. That's, I'm using up all my wool. Yeah. It's utterly beautiful. Right, Mr. Field, last word goes to you, sir. Tell us where people can get your books. What what's what are your two books called? What are you working on next? And then we'll say Tarar a bit. Oh, okay. Plug time. So first book is called Cartography. That was out in 2018. That's basically everything you need to know about making maps. And the book that's just been published is called Thematic Mapping. It's absolutely brilliant. It's got a red cover because Nottingham Forest playing red. And you can get them at any online resellers. So the big Amazon place. They're very good presents. They're even better to buy for yourself. You can see my maps at carto.maps arcgis.com or just find me on twitter where i spout all sorts of rubbish some something sometimes about maps but sometimes about beer or football or playing the drums or snowboarding so i'm at kenneth field on twitter brilliant there you go folks you know where to to chase him down when your team has vanquished nottingham forest you'll be on twitter (laughs) you can 
tweet at him, <laughs> mocking tweets. Unfortunately, I can't do that because his team beat mine today. All right, there you go. That's oh, the end of Map right. Corner. Follow up my map. <laughs> <laughs> Toodle pip, tarara bit. Look after yourselves. Tatty bye. Thanks, everyone. That was great. Thanks, Ken. That was great. Pleasure. It's fun. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.